Sometimes it's used as a cuss word. But a lot of people have their own opinions about what hell is. One, art, uh, one writer said that the concept of hell is absurd, and luckily so, because who would want to go there? He quotes Bertrand Russell, atheist, who said, religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. The idea is that hell was just invented in order to put people like you and me under control of the patriarchy and in religious authorities like Christian pastors and things like that. In fact, one retired priest even said, well, hell was invented by the church to control people with fear. That's really the whole purpose of it. The Pope reneged on this. Recently, sometime last year, he confided into a close friend of his that hell may actually not exist after all. What really happens is that we're annihilated. We're, we're just kind of destroyed into spiritual dust, and we just evaporate, and nothing else happens. He said this in confidence to a friend of his, but his friend quoted him and put him in the newspaper, and so the Vatican kind of said, okay, let's back this train up. Um, of course, Catholics do believe in some form of hell. Um, even for Christians, we go through purgatory, according to their view. Hell is a difficult subject, and it's one of those challenging topics that, A, makes the world bristle. People who are not Christians hate the fact that there's even a, a teaching like this. And even for Christians, if we're honest, it's hard for us too. It's an uncomfortable subject, but we have to dive into that this morning. Because here's the thing, when Jesus talks about hell in this particular passage, I think he's answering the question for us, who goes to hell? He assumes that it exists. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't pretend like it's just something made up. In fact, he talks about hell more than anyone else. Uh, he, he takes a, a bunch of different passages, he puts them together and helps us to see that hell is something that Jesus is very much concerned about for Christians, um, for unbelievers. He assumes hell is real. Who goes there? How do we get there? How do you know who's headed to hell versus not, who's not headed to hell? There's a simple answer to that that I think all of you who have been around Compass for a long time may have to that question. But what Jesus says about this is a lot more challenging than you and I may at first realize. So, with trepidation, let's jump into our text today. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We're looking at just a few verses, and what we're going to look at, again, is going to be a challenging passage. So please, don't tune out. I'm going to go fast, as I often do, but we're going to talk about a very heavy text. I need you not to tune me out. I need you not to tune this out, because it's so important. The very immediate passage before this um, Jesus' disciples see some other guys who are preaching Christ, and they're casting out demons. And they tell Jesus, Jesus, we saw some of these other disciples who are disciples of yours casting out demons, and we told them to stop. And Jesus says, don't. <laughs> don't tell them to stop. If they're not against us, they're for us. Jesus is basically affirming the fact that there's, there's Christians who are going to be serving and working that you should not hinder. In fact, to the contrary, instead of hindering other Christians, you should support them and encourage them. And he doubles down on this in this particular text. What you're going to find very soon is that I think for most of us, how you view church and how you view other Christians, Jesus doesn't view the same way. Jesus is a lot more serious about this body of believers than we typically are. Let's read it together here. We're going to start at verse 42. And here's what he says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In fact, if you have your Bible in front of you, let's keep reading. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This entire text is about hell. It, it front loads and back loads the conversation of hell, though, with a subject that's very important. So you have in this particular text, remember, look at this, this verse here on the screen. He talks about it's better to be thrown in the sea, to drown, than to cause your brother or your sister to stumble. And he talks about little ones. He refers to people that are young in their faith, maybe immature in their faith, perhaps, believers who are operating uh, but still are, are not developed in the way they should be. Whatever the case is, these are, he's talking about Christians here. He says, if you have a Christian around you who, has a, who is weak, young in their faith, or just a Christian in general, uh, and you're causing them to sin, you're pushing them toward disbelief of the Bible or disbelief in God, if you're causing those people to sin, it's better for you to have that wheel, that concrete wheel around your neck, and for you to be tossed to the middle of the sea and drowned alive. Why is God so serious about that? Why is Jesus so serious about that? I don't know. If you first read this, let's just be honest for a second. That probably that strikes your ear funny. Like, why is that such a big deal? What does it matter if my life causes your life to sin? What, if I'm doing something, I'm enjoying a freedom that God has given me. Why does it matter to God that you're affected by that? Well, God looks at the Christian life and he says, I care a whole lot about family relationships. I care a whole lot about how Christians interact with other Christians. See, this whole conversation about hell, he front loads it and back loads it with how the Christian family is supposed to interact, which is why in the very last verse, verse 50, that we're looking at today, I have it on the screen for you, and I put it up with verse 42. The very last verse, he says, salt is good, uh, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how are you going to make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. That's a corporate word there. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is a challenging passage. But I think the observation we should make at the very forefront of this, as we talk about hell, again, G Jesus is sandwiching a conversation here. I want you to care about each other so much that you'd be unwilling to cause them to stumble. And he's going to talk about hell in the middle and say, this is how you should treat uh, your own sinful inclinations. And in the very end, he says, be salty. Your life should be able to be tasted by the watching world that when they see you, they can discern these are Christians. To have salt in yourself. Salt is a good thing. And Jesus says your life should be seasoned in such a way that when other people taste you, they're able to see that there's something unique about you, that you follow a different ethical code, that your life is different than the average person. And so you have this side which says, don't cause your brother to stumble. And then you have this side which says, by the way, be at peace. Have salt in and among the body so that you guys are at peace with one another. Here's something that I don't think often we think often about. And it's that Jesus cares so very much. God cares so very much about how we interact that he's willing to say that if you're not interacting in this way, if you're not caring about the other people next to you and not causing them to sin, that you're in danger of severe, painful judgment. Let me put it like this for you, number one. Uh, we ought to care deeply about protecting the faith of other Christians. 
That's why verse 42, he says, don't cause them to sin, to stumble. And verse 50, he says, be at peace among yourselves, have salt in yourselves. There's a sense in which Jesus is going to talk about hell within the context of talking about the way Christians interact with one another. And the fact that he puts those two topics so closely together ought to cause you to say, why? What's going on there? And I'm saying we should care deeply about protecting the faith of other Christians. That's what it, that's what it means for us, at the very, very least. In college, I took a class called sociology. And in the class, I learned about something called the bystander effect. And one of the, uh, one of the hallmark cases was a story about Kitty Genovese uh, and her, this guy who next to her actually killed her. Here, here's a story. She was walking home late one night. She's 28 years old, and this guy attacks her. And over the course of 30 minutes, he stabs her, rapes her, and eventually she dies from the wounds that were inflicted. The unique twist about this story is that the New York Times reported that there were 38 people who, over the course of those 30 minutes, actually had the ability to do something, whether it was call the cops or whether it was to jump in and stop the guy from assaulting her. Uh, she eventually dies from her wounds, but those 38 people stood back, and, and what they did is now called the bystander effect, which is to say that when there's more people involved or more potential people to answer a certain issue, the likelihood is that we are less, we are less likely to intervene. So if someone is getting beat up here in the room, there's a million of us in the room, we're less likely to jump in and help. Why? Sociologists disagree and, you know, make arguments about various reasons why. You know, there's someone stronger, there's someone more equipped, there's someone better to help, there's, there's another person that can do this besides me. And so uh, they look at this case and it's like, Kitty Genovese is the reason we began talking about this. In fact, it's this case that led to the legislation that gave us the 911 system. Because they suggested, well, if there was a 911 system, then people could easily get in contact with authorities and help this lady out. Prior to that, you had to call the operator and then hope that the operator wasn't busy and then have the operator patch you through to the local police department. The bystander effect is something that the Christian cannot allow themselves to feel. We can't allow ourselves to sit back and say, well, I know that Christian over there is suffering, but I'm going to sit back because someone else is better equipped to handle them or someone else is better equipped to serve them. God doesn't give us the option to have a bystander mentality in the Christian community. He's vehemently opposed to it. In fact, the reason I think Jesus puts this conversation with the topic of hell is because he is so jealous about the body of Christ. He is jealous for your purity. God is jealous. He's, he's eager to see you grow in your faith. God is jealous for your holiness. God demands that you be holy as he is, he is holy. God cares so much about your faith that he says anyone who would threaten your faith ought to be drowned alive. He says that in Leviticus 19 too, not the drowning of life part, but he says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God cares about your faith. Every single person in this room who's a Christian, God cares deeply about your faith. And so we should too. Now here's the, here's the other side of that. God often looks at us like a spouse. Now this is weird because guys, we get to be called the bride of Christ. It's a weird thing for us, but oh well, this is it. We're called the bride of Christ. And you guys, the girls, you get to be called sons of God too because God talks about it that way as well. The bride of Christ. So that when Israel and the church goes off and you know, courts some other pagan deity, God looks at that like spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. So for instance, for, for some of you in this room, I trust, you're going to get married. 
Um, ladies, you're going to have a husband that you love. You're going to think he's handsome and amazing. Uh, in fact, some people in this room just got married recently, and it's, it's, it's a blissful, joyful thing. You're going to get married to this guy that you will rightly desire has no eyes for any other woman. When a beautiful woman walks past him, you're going to trust and you're going to desire that he's not looking at her as she walks by. And that's a right desire. Men, you're going to be jealous for your wife. When you marry that gal, you're going to say, I want this gal only for me. So if you see your wife flirting with some other guy, you're going to feel something inside you that says, that's not right. I'm going to do something about that. And rightly so. That's a righteous jealousy. God expects that for those who are married. In a similar sense, when God looks at us, he says, I have died for this, my bride. Whenever we commit spiritual adultery, God looks at that with jealousy and says, no, that's wrong. And it is. God cares deeply about your spiritual maturity, your faithfulness. Having said that, again, he has verses like this. You, you got to be holy because I'm holy. You got to be holy because I'm holy. Matthew 18.10. I don't have this on a slide, but Matthew 18.10, he says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones, one of these Christians. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Jesus says that there are angels who are watching your lives and they're reporting back to him. Does God need that to happen? No, but I think he's making the point. Despite the fact that I know everything, I still care about the intimate details of your life and I'm going to have angels report back to me about your life. Amazing. God is jealous for your faith, which means this then, at the very, very least, at the very, very least, and this is the challenging part because this is going to be the part of the sermon where we're going to start to ramp up what this suggests for all of us. Let me just say this as your pastor for a second. If I am your pastor, you got to come to small groups because this weekend small groups or this Wednesday small groups talking about the subjects we're going to discuss, you need to talk this out. There's no way I can say everything I need to say about this. So please, please, please come on Wednesday. God is jealous for your faith. Therefore, there should be nothing in our lives that cause other Christians to stumble, which means, letter B then, we should use our freedoms, use our faith, use our ability to, to do this, that, or the other thing to serve others, to build other Christians up, to edify them, to love them, to care for them. Even if there are things that we could do and even righteously could do with a clear conscience, Paul says, God says through the, through the pen of Paul, it's better to give it up. We're, we joke about Christmas music in November. I'm of the party that says, Christmas music all year round, praise God is good. Some of you feel otherwise. That's <laughs> okay. Some of you feel otherwise. You guys feel like, well, you know, Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Some of you Grinches are like, Christmas music only on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Get rid of it otherwise. Jokingly, if we wanted to, I could say, well, if, if me listening to Christmas music offends your conscience and makes you stumble, then I should be willing to give that up. Don't you try to use it against me, okay? <laughs> I, won't, I won't accept that. We laugh about that, but there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of truth to this. So for instance, here, here's freedoms that we have that I think are up for grabs. Going to church on Saturday versus Sunday versus Tuesday. We had a Tuesday service instead of Saturday. I think that's a freedom for us to do. Um, freedom, choosing how much to give back to God. We often say give 10%. We talk about a tithe, but you can give back to God however much you want to give back to God. Scripture commands that you give. That's clear. But how much you give, it's up to you. Um, singing hymns versus modern worship music. Now, some modern worship music is basically dog food. Other stuff is really good. And whether you want to sing an old hymn, because that's what Ian loves, or whether you want to sing something new by the Gettys, or whatever, up to you. You have freedom to do that. Here's another one. Drinking alcohol. When you're 21, you can freely partake of alcoholic beverages. Tequila, whiskey, wine, anything in between. You could freely partake of that. 
with the caveat that you're not getting drunk. We understand that, right? You have the freedom in Christ to do that. And in fact, it's that specific question, wine and food, that Paul addresses in Romans 14. Let's quickly go through this because I want to point out something to you that's really, really important. And again, come on Wednesday, you're going to talk about this chapter a lot more. But here's what he says. Rapidly go through it with me. He starts at verse 13 in chapter 14 of Romans. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in any way of a brother. Verse 13 is critical. Decide never to put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister. Verse 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, uh, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is. He's not saying that it magically becomes unclean, but if your conscience is offended by you know, vodka, then, then you, should not, you should not partake because your conscience says that's wrong. Okay, don't drink it then. He says, Paul could say, I, I'm drinking, I'm drinking you know, in this case, he's talking about uh, meat sacrificed to idols, but he's saying, I, I'm persuaded this is fine. However, verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul takes this conversation to a whole new level. If you love the people that God has put in your life and you love the people for whom Christ died, he says, don't, don't eat it then. Don't drink it. Don't smoke it. Don't do things that you know are going to offend the conscience of another brother and sister. He continues. He says, so, I, so don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You're not going to go to the kingdom of God and just be ordering Big Macs and, and, and double doubles. But it's, it's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's that word peace again. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for, there's that word peace again, peace and for mutual upbuilding. So here's the thing. All the freedoms that you have, God cares deeply that you, don't, that you don't cause another Christian to stumble. So he's saying, hold your freedoms with an open hand. Anything that is in your life that would potentially cause another Christian to stumble, hold it with an open hand. Now, here's the thing. I know that this can go to the extreme. Oh, like, well, I'm offended by plaid. Okay, so you shouldn't wear plaid anymore then? Is that the cat? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. And that's why this conversation is nuanced, but it's an important one. As a rule, what God is telling us through this text is that we should care so much about other Christians that we would say whatever would potentially cause someone to stumble or think poorly about my Christian testimony, I'm going to hold that with an open hand and be willing to give it up. He continues. And this is the last section. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That is, Christians who are saved. Everything is indeed clean. What you eat, no big deal. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. What, and what powerful words. When's the last time you thought about your relationship to other Christians in that context of like, wow, I wonder if what I'm doing right now is offensive to other Christians and unhelpful. Man, I, I would love to just throw out a million different potential areas for you, but I don't want to be the Holy Spirit to you. I do want you to say though to yourself, is there anything in my life is there anything I'm drinking, anything I'm eating, anything I'm photographing, anything that I'm partaking of that could potentially be misunderstood by my brothers and sisters and cause them to sin? You should be asking that question because Jesus considers that a very significant question. If anything you're doing is causing someone to stumble or sin, he's saying, okay, better to throw, better to throw yourself in the sea and drown. Why? Why does this matter? Because fighting sin in all forms is a matter of heaven and hell which leads us to the next section. 
We read this section already. Let's go through it really quickly here. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, uh, to, to the unquenchable fire, which tells you unquenchable means it's never satisfied. You get that, right? Unquenchable means it doesn't stop. It continues to burn and it never lacks for fuel to continue the, the raging fire. Let's continue. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. I cause you to sin, tear it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. He says it repeatedly just to make sure you understand. And this is the same Jesus who's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who so loved the world that God gave his son Jesus to die for our sin. This is Jesus, the very same one who had compassion on prostitutes and tax collectors. The same one who let a prostitute clean his feet with her hair. This is the kind of Jesus who's compassionate, gracious, putting it, remember the, he put his fingers on the eyes of the Jews, spit on his eyes and then put his fingers on and healed him? This is the same Jesus. Don't put Jesus in a different category. You have to understand the multifaceted nature of who Jesus is. Loving beyond measure, definitely, but also serious about sin. Look at this again. He says, okay, hand, foot, eye. Whatever the avenue is, if it causes you to sin, eliminate it, eliminate it. Okay, pop quiz. Does he mean this literally? You guys are afraid to answer. Pop quiz. Does he mean this literally? No. He does not. He does not mean that you should literally pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. Why do I know that? Because you can just as easily sin with one hand and one foot and one eye than you can with two. You could still sin. The issue is a matter of the heart. He's saying whatever avenue that lets you sin easily, you need to deal with that severely, radically, even painfully. If you were to pluck out your right eye, would that hurt? Let's try. Someone come up here. Just kidding. <laughs> Cut off your hand, your foot. That would be a painful experience. He's using hyperbole to make his point crystal clear. What's his point? You should maim yourself. You should allow yourself to be maimed because you shouldn't, you shouldn't want to allow yourself to go to hell. Better to be crippled, better to go with one foot, better to go with one eye, one hand, than to be thrown into hell. And he, he defines hell in three different ways. Unquenchable fire, hell itself, and then he says uh, into hell, oh yeah, hell, so three, two ways. Quenchable fire, hell, hell, fire. This is a very difficult text. Look at verse 48 again, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Who is Jesus' audience right now in this text? Think about that before you mention that. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to unbelievers? He's talking to his disciples right now. Which tells me that as you and I read this, we shouldn't immediately brush it off as if, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, Pastor Rod, I don't need to think about this. And I think, yes, in one sense, True. But in another sense, Jesus is talking. I, I could see Peter, John, and James right there listening to what Jesus is saying. And I know Peter heard this because Peter is Mark's source for this gospel. So Peter's listening to Jesus say this. You and I need to think about this. Jesus is essentially saying, if you're not going to fight sin ruthlessly, mercilessly, you are in danger of hellfire. Let me prove that to you. In fact, let's put the number two. Fear the consequences of not fighting sin. I think that's Jesus' driving point, and I think you and I need to hear that afresh this morning. And I'm sorry it's going to be painful, but let's do this together. Okay, we're going to hurt together for a little bit, but we have to talk about this because it's that important. 
By the way, no one brought this up yesterday when I preached it, but I do think you should notice that there are two verses missing. Verses 44 and 46. You look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. Verses 44 and 46 are missing. You can ask your leaders where those verses went on Wednesday. You're welcome, leaders. Look out for an email. <clears throat> Fear the consequences of not fighting sin. You guys heard of North and South Korea? Anybody? <laughs> April of last year, President Kim and Kim Jong-un met at one of the dividing lines between North and South Korea. It was a gesture, political maneuvering, of course, but in the gesture, they shook hands and President Kim walked to this, the northern side of Korea. Kim Jong-un walked to the southern side of Korea. They shook hands. They hugged. They, they even held hands as they walked over the line together. It was beautiful. People got really excited. Hey, they, they, you know, there, there's, there could finally be peace. I know there, there was an armistice, but there was never a peace treaty signed. Maybe this is peace for North and South Korea, finally. And that would be great. We would love that, wouldn't we? We'd love to see North Korea stop being weird and crazy and psychotic. We'd love to see that kind of resolution take place. And while this may be inspiring in a political scene and even the global scene, here's what we can't take away from this. We can never make peace with our sin. Our enemy, the flesh, and our sin can never be something that we shake hands with and say, you know what, yeah, I lie all the time, but no big deal. I'm forgiven. I'm going to live with this. Yeah, I lust all the time, but you know what, everyone does. And in this day and age, when you got cell phones and computers, it's so hard not to, let me just deal with this. I'm just going to live with this. It's so hard not to gossip, you know, when you got so much easy technology, so much easy versatility to talk to other people, whatever. Hey, here's the thing. When it comes to our sin, we can never shake hands. There is no DMZ when it comes to engaging with our sin. If you're a Christian, there is never a time when we get to take our foot off the gas and say, okay, I'm just going to cruise now. We fight our sin for the rest of our lives. In fact, let me put it this way. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate is that for those who are Christians, they will be characterized by a type of fighting of their sin that is intense. It is radical. It is, it is willing to do the the, the greatest, hardest, most difficult thing in order to be faithful to Christ. You remember last week when we were talking about discipleship, Jesus said that the, the disciple, the Christian, real faith is the one, uh, the person who says, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. This is right on the heels of this. Yeah, there's a few verses in between, but that's the point. Jesus is saying a real disciple will be characterized by a type of fighting that is intense. And I'm going to say it's a necessary fruit. It's a necessary fruit. That's where verses like this come in. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide. The way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow. And the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. How does this verse fit into the gospel? This is the person who has truly been converted. He or she will be characterized by a narrow road lifestyle. He and she is not willing to gossip, so help them God. He and she is memorizing verses. He and she is doing everything they can to become more like Christ, even though it makes them so contrary to the rest of the world around them. He goes on later, another scary passage of the Bible. You remember this passage, right? Where he says, not many, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to go to the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord is a term of respect, honor, deference. And he says, hey, just because you say that, because you call me king, doesn't mean that I am your king. On that day, verse 22, many will say to me, 
Uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Lawlessness. Circle that in your mind. The obedience is not the way we get heaven. Our obedience to Christ is not the way we get heaven. But faith will fuel a real fervent obedience. I think about people like the Apostle Paul, who is by far one of my heroes of the faith. I look at him and I think, man, he's doing everything right. And even Paul, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's a sense in which Paul says, just because I know I've been saved and I've been called of, uh, called of God, doesn't mean that I can't work hard. In fact, it suggests the opposite. Because I've been saved, I should work hard. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Ask yourself seriously in this moment, young person, Pause for a minute. Ask yourself seriously, do I think about my sin in this way? Do I think about my walk with God in this way, where I know I've been saved by grace through faith and Christ accepts me on the, on the righteous works of Christ? God accepts me on the righteous works of Christ? And I deal ruthlessly with my sin, such that I can say, I discipline my body. Keep it under control. Is this the way that you think about your sin and your relationship with God? If not, you have a problem. I'm not saying that you're not a Christian necessarily, but I'm saying you need to change the way that you think about sin and fighting your sin because God is serious about you waging war against your own sin. Intense fighting is a necessary fruit of salvation. And, and here's how we know this. Here's how you can be confident that what I'm saying is true. I'm not making this up because Jesus says the opposite. Not fighting sin is hell. Because just invert the verse. If your right hand causes you to sin and you don't cut it off, what can we suppose? That what Jesus threatens is your reality. If your right hand causes you to sin and you don't cut it off, Jesus is saying, your portion is hell. How long does hell last? Unquenchable, never-ending fire. In fact, let's talk about hell for a second. Again, painful for all of us, but let's make, it, let's make some headway. What is hell? Here's what you need to know. Hell, in English, comes from the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is actually transliterated from a few words in the Hebrew, which means Valley of Hinnom, or Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Okay, so that's what you need to get. That, that's this, that's the, hell, Gehenna, Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Now, what does this mean then? Well, this actually comes from several Old Testament texts. The Valley of, of Hinnom was a despicable place where bad, bad things happened. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm alluding to it by showing you the graphic. The Valley of Hinnom is where Israelites would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. And the god Molech, he has different names. Milcom, MLK, sometimes you'll see it abbreviated. Um, Malcolm, you'll see his name mentioned different ways in scriptures and ancient texts. But the god Molech was at the heart of the pagan sacrifice of babies, kids. Israel in her history actually gave in to this. In 2 Chronicles 28, 1-3, King Ahaz was 20 years old, so just two years older than you for some of you. 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he made it, uh, metal images of the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons. He burned his sons as an offering. Think about that. King Ahaz takes his sons, his children, and he offers them to Molech. 
Manasseh did the same thing. He burned his sons in an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. If you're reading Jeremiah with us in the DBR, you remember reading in, in chapter 7, this is one of the reasons God's judgment comes upon Israel, Judah that is, because he says to them, they built high places, uh, they built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. Just to give you some insight here, the god Molech, they, they, there's two depictions of that statue and how it worked. They think he was a bronze, uh, a bronze large statue that either had his hands held out like what you see here and the kid, because you'll notice he's on fire. The god Molech, is there, you can't see it right now because there's the, the graphics there, but there are flames that are around him. He's bronze, he's got flames around him, you put your children in his arms, he burns them to death. The second image of the god, the god Molech, the pagan god Molech, is a chamber in his belly where the chamber had a door that latched up and down so you could allow for you know, stuff to be thrown inside where the, where the Israelites would throw their babies inside, latch it up so they didn't have to hear the baby cry. This is the pagan god Molech. And so now at this site, the Valley of Hinnom, you have all these terrible practices going on. King Josiah comes on the scene and he says, you know what, we're done with this. We're done with this. He defiled Topheth, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And so now what you have is King Josiah, a righteous king, saying we're no longer going to murder our children by sacrificing them. Now this is going to become a trash heap. So he puts trash there. He puts criminals there, their bodies, the corpses of criminals were placed in this, in this area, and it was set fire. Because of course, when you got trash, you don't want to let trash continue to accumulate, so he continues to burn it. And of course, the burning flames correspond to the dead corpses. Well, what, do you have when, what do you get when you have a corpse? You get worms, maggots, right? And so now you have worms and fire. The fire never dying, and the worm never dies either. This became a symbol, a metaphor for what the eternal flames of hell would be and what we understand today. That's what hell is. Eternal conscious torment symbolized by a non-never-ending fire and worms that continue to eat away at your flesh. Tough. This is what Jesus says is the fate of those who refuse to bow the knee to his lordship. Obviously, this is something not to take lightly. Jesus doesn't. And that's why it's so critical that we understand that Jesus died to save us from our sin, not to allow us to play with it so that we might not get burned. Paul says in Romans 6, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? This is the nature of the costly walk of the Christian life. Salvation is free, but discipleship is very expensive. How are you doing, young person? How's your fight against sin going? You should fear not fighting. This last verse that I want to look at with you, I saved it for the end because I just want to make a point, a small point out of it. Verse 49, let me just give you the context. Verse 49 and 50, everyone's going to be salted with fire, Jesus says. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how are you going to make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I need to show you something here. Screen. Salt. Salt is good. Fire. You have to look back at the verses above it. Is fire good or bad? Fire is bad. Fire has a negative connotation. Salt has a positive connotation. Jesus is saying, uh, salt is good. 
Everyone's going to be salted. Everyone's going to be, uh, everyone's going to experience fire. What does fire mean? I think fire refers to suffering. Jesus is saying, and, that, and then there's a, there's a type of suffering for the Christian, right? Cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, plucking out your eye, that's a type of suffering. It's going to be hard for you to make sacrifices as a Christian. That's going to hurt. And so he says, everybody, Christian and non, are going to be salted with fire. Christians are salted with the type of fire, a suffering that is temporarily painful. Whereas there's another type of suffering that the unbeliever goes through that will be eternally painful. I think Jesus is making the point. You have both options in front of you. Everyone's going to suffer. You get to choose which kind you, get, you want. Point number three, choose which kind of suffering you want to endure. Hang with me, guys. I know it's a tough one. You get to pay one of two prices in this life, the cost of discipleship or the cost of damnation. I want you to choose wisely. So I want to just provide you a quick chart to think about this. Quickly, if you're not a Christian, I, I, please pay attention. If you are a Christian, you also need to take heed of what Jesus is saying for us. Which kind of suffering are you going to endure? Cost of discipleship, cost of damnation. Both of them are going to be painful. We already said that. That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone's going to be salted with fire. If you fight your sin, it's going to be painful. But the cost of damnation is going to cost you a lot more and a lot longer, which is the second thing you need to recognize is that one of these pains is, is, is a short-term temporary pain and one of them is a long-term and never-ending pain. Suppose for a minute that I, I could say to you, you know what, um, we have one hour together. In this hour, I can do one of two things for you. I can give you one minute of pure, awesome, pleasure, bliss, and awesomeness with 59 minutes of the most intense, terrible suffering you've ever felt. Or, I can give you one minute of pain, won't be nearly as painful as the other one, I'll give you one minute of pain with 59 minutes of pure, unadulterated, godly bliss. Pick one. Probably for most of you, you're not going to pick the one where you get one minute of joy and 59 minutes of torture. Why do we do that then with our lives? Why do some people choose to live a life that is, you know, it's one minute of pleasure, but 59 minutes of eternal conscious torment? The kind of life that we should choose is the life that says, okay, one minute is going to be painful. It's going to be, and that one minute that I'm giving you is really like 85 years. It's a long life. It's a short life when you look at it from eternally, eternity's point of view, but it's a long life. But it's a minute by comparison to eternity. And even then, that's not a good analogy because we're looking at something that's infinitely long we're trying to look at an hour and saying, okay, if I pay the price for a minute, I get 59 minutes of joy. Or I could say, I want one minute of, of, uh, of bliss and I get 59 minutes of torture. One is temporary, one is eternal. And here's the thing, the Christian life is not all, you know, dour and sour. Christians are joyful. In fact, because we're doing the right thing, because we have a clear conscience, because we're living for God's glory, there is a real happiness that we enjoy now. Whereas for the unbeliever, for someone who's enslaved to their sin, you are enslaved to cheap thrills. That's all you get. You get a short-lived, non-lasting, cheap thrill, a cheap imitation, a knockoff of what the real thing is. And of course, as I already mentioned, one leads to future happiness while one leads to eternal pain. Which one makes the most sense, young person? Which one makes the most sense? And yet I know that there are so many of you guys in this room who are choosing the wrong option, 
who are choosing, instead of saying, I want to be with God in Christ, I want to be saved, I want to be right with him, you're choosing the one minute of pleasure for the 59 minutes of eternal pain. Let me just reason with you right now to say, don't do that. Don't throw away your eternal life. Don't throw away this life. This life is precious. It's a gift. Why are you letting yourself be enslaved to what is so poor a substitute for living a godly life in Christ? Parents would always tell me not to play with matches or lighters. I would do it anyway. I was a kid. No one's surprised by that. Thank God, though, nothing ever came of it. I never set the house on fire. I never burned down my apartment complex. But that's not true for a nine-year-old kid who set his mobile home on fire. He was playing with matches. He was trying to get warm, he said. He accidentally set the, the house on fire and killed five of his family members in the process. Someone said, you play with fire, you get burned. I'm sure this kid regrets his decision, and I'm sure he'll be scarred for the rest of his life as long as he lives. And I feel bad for him. We should feel bad for ourselves, though, if we're playing with fire right now and entrusting our eternal lives to this temporary moment, this fleeting moment of pleasure. So when you play with fire, you can accidentally set fire to your eternal life, which will be devastating, deadly, and have irreversible consequences. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And the reason why is because it's real, and he wants you to avoid it. God cares about your faith. He cares about the faith of others in this room who are believers. You should too. And so my last plea for you in this sermon, I actually have two. I told you, you got to come to Wednesday small groups, okay? Please do that. If I'm your pastor, come and come ready to discuss. The questions are already on the website. Second thing, as believers, just because we know we're saved from hell doesn't mean we still don't take sin seriously. As unbelievers, if you're in here and you're still hearing my voice, thank you for listening. Please heed my voice and run and save yourself from this crooked and twisted generation. Today is a day of salvation. You can do this right now in your heart, in your seat, by confessing your sins to God, turning from them, and putting your full weight and trust in Him right now. Let's pray.